Hey everyone, and welcome back to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray, and we've got an amazing show for you this week. We will be diving into Mudge's Twitter whistleblower complaint uh, and all the other security news with Adam Boileau in just a moment. Uh, and then it will be time for this week's sponsor interview with Andrew Morris, the founder of Grey Noise Intelligence. And uh, look, it's a genuinely great interview, that one. Andrew is a lot of fun. Uh, he's, a, he's a great interview. He's a lot of fun to listen to. And he joins me this week to take a critical look at the threat intelligence industry. And as you'll hear, Andrew thinks the threat intel value proposition is pretty weak for most organizations. And uh, yeah, it kind of drives him nuts, basically. Uh, it's a really entertaining and fun chat, and I highly recommend that you listen to it. That is coming up later. But first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's security news with Adam Boileau. And Adam, of course, we're going to kick off this week's coverage by talking about uh, some some news that just broke in the last 24 hours. Uh, Mudge, the former head of security at Twitter, has written a gigantic whistleblower complaint uh, that claims Twitter is a gigantic trash fire uh, when it comes to its security and it's uh, you know he's he's got a lawyer he's written this thing up it's gone to the US government you know can open worms everywhere and the allegations in his whistleblowing complaint are actually I'm not going to say they're surprising but they are serious and pretty pretty damning let's put it that way yeah, Twitter's position as a platform really, you know, does mean that it needs to do a bunch of things right. And, you know, we've seen prior to this, you know, a bunch of, of, of stories about Twitter accounts getting hacked, things going wrong. Um, so, you know, we we're all, I guess, pretty unsurprised uh, to see, you know, some of the internal details of that. I mean, um, the idea that Twitter doesn't have a dev environment and just does everything live. I mean, that sounds believable to me. I don't want it to be true. Uh, but, you know, that sort of detail, yeah. I mean, you know, I can I can imagine that being the case. Um, and there's just all sorts of things in here that range from, you know, technical things like not applying security patches, not having access control, you know, for... Uh, client, you know, client workstations, laptops and things that check their security state all the way through to, you know, employing Indian government, you know, security services agents to, to work at Twitter. And you know, that's a pretty big allegation, you know, when you consider the importance of it to political debate all around the world. Yeah, so there is a specific allegation that the Indian government kind of strong-armed Twitter into hiring one of its guys, right, to go to go in there and, you know, into a position where they would have access to a lot of information. So, you know, let's walk through the allegations in this thing, right? So uh, probably the most concerning one is that just basically everybody who works at Twitter has access to everything, right? Uh, that there's no logging, there's really poor control. So it's an inside threat actor's dream, right? The, the environment there. There's some other funny ones too, like when a user tries to delete data, Twitter's completely lost visibility into where that data goes, so they're not even sure if it gets deleted, right? They they don't know. So users don't so much delete data as put it into some sort of quantum state where its existence is kind of <laughs> just uncertain as opposed to uh, destroyed. What else have we got? You know, there's an allegation that uh, the CEO wanted to capitulate to Russian government censorship demands. Uh, there's also an allegation that the US government alerted Twitter to the fact that it probably had some spies working on its staff that were uh, associated with the Foreign Intelligence Agency. One of the wildest allegations, and this is one that the Washington Post, which was one of the outlets to break this story, it was CNN and Washington Post, uh, both sort of simultaneously broke it. One of the items that the Washington Post was able to substantiate uh, is that Twitter is seriously at risk of downtime basically knocking the whole site over and putting it in a state where it can't easily be restored. Like they're saying if they lose a few key data centers, that's it. They will not be able to restart the site because no one really understands how it works anymore. What did you think of that part? I mean, that certainly sounds believable on a platform like this that's just grown, you know, really organically, had a you know, whole range of people through it. Uh, and, you know, isn't as, you know, isn't super well resourced compared to really big platforms like, you know, Facebook or Apple or Azure, you know, and we've seen big outages of even well resourced platforms. So the idea that, you know, something like Twitter, you know, could evolve to the state where no one really knows how it works and 
turning it back on, you know, rebooting it is not a thing they know how to do anymore. That, I mean, 100% seems believable to me. Yeah, and, you know, as I say, Washington Post was able to sort of verify that concern uh, with people who are still working there. Uh, You know, we've got other stuff like, you know, developers are just pushing code from their laptop straight into production, right? So no no dev environment, no test environment, no staging, no test, just we'll do it live. We'll do it yeah. live, right? Which uh, also super believable. Yeah, I mean, there's allegations that there's like a whole heap of unpatched stuff. I think you mentioned that. I mean, one that's interesting is that they were reporting that, oh, you know, we've got EDR on 92% of our, you know, corporate systems. But what, something they didn't tell the board is that one third of those devices were reporting that they were in a really insecure state. Um, there are no functioning. <laughs> backups uh, and you know just just on and on it goes so these allegations like it's sort of what you'd expect right from a company that grew very quickly isn't as cashed up as as say Facebook or Google right so they can't just take hundreds of engineers and throw them at, at each one of these individual problems but that said I mean this is stuff that needs to be addressed yeah, I mean, Twitter's rise to importance, you know, beyond just being a social media site, and especially in the political world, you know, when we're relying on you know, the president of the United States tweeting stuff like we were last administration, it needs, you know, it's just needs a much higher standard of engineering than I guess we've got. Um, but you can, you know, 100% see how it got here. And, you know, if anything seeing how shonky it is behind the scenes makes you respect kind of how much work some of the, you know, like SREs and engineering and, you know, all the people that have probably worked very late nights to keep Twitter online, you know, some shout outs to them for doing it and clearly what is a pretty adverse environment. Now, look, uh, here's, here's the second part of this, right, where we talk about some other claims that Mudge has made in this whistleblowing complaint that have nothing to do with security. And to be honest, lend a little bit of weight to Twitter's defense that this is sour grapes. And it pains me to say that because, you know, you don't find many people in the security field who are as respected and revered as much, okay? Yeah, But yeah, exactly. he's got, he leads his entire whistleblower complaint saying that, that Twitter lied to Elon Musk about bots, right? And he does this whole rant about how Twitter is using its metric for users, which is uh, monetizable daily active users, right? So this is the number of users they say are real users, and they say of them, maybe 5% are spam. So they've got a bucket of users they call MDAO, and that's their, that's their actual user base, right? Now, Mudge is arguing that because there's a whole bunch of other accounts that aren't monetizable, uh, because they're not actually reading stuff or whatever, or Twitter's determined that they're kind of bot-like, um, that this is misleading. And it's not. Okay, from a, from a SEC reporting perspective, it's not because the number that customers are going to care about are the are the ones who are seeing the ads. Now, if ninety five percent of the ones who are seeing the ads are okay, and they're reporting that five percent aren't, and those things broadly line up, that's fine. You haven't misled the market. Okay, now. Mudge's argument seems to be that the user experience is destroyed by all of these other bots. And I hate to say it, but the user experience isn't really material, right? When it comes to, to an SEC filing, what is material is, you know, are you giving your customers an accurate, the customers and the market, the investor market, are you giving them an accurate um, uh, breakdown of what your user numbers are as it pertains to the ability of the business to make money? And I see nothing in Mudge's complaint that suggest that they're doing anything misleading there. Now, this is going to be interesting because as we know, there's a legal dispute currently between Elon Musk and uh, and Twitter and it's all off to court in Delaware. And it's my sense that they will either be deposing Mudge or putting him on the stand. And I don't know how that's going to go for him, if I'm going to be perfectly clear. And I think it was a real mistake of him to put this stuff in a whistleblower complaint dealing with security stuff when it looks, I mean, just from my reading as a publisher, right, I have to provide statistics and stuff to my customers. The way Twitter's doing it is fine, right? And I think it's, I don't think it's going to look good for him when this progresses. As you say, Mudge is very well respected and, you know, that doesn't mean you can't be wrong about other stuff. I mean, you know, we, you know, I talk about security things and perhaps maybe I'm an expert at that, but Lordy, that does that not extend to being an expert at other things in my life as well? So, you know, we can hold both those positions, I guess, as we are in our, in our head, right? We can respect all of the work Mudge has done. You know, he's probably right about some of the security specific bits, but yeah, I mean, I, I certainly don't feel equipped to judge it, but 
yeah, you absolutely could be right about one thing and wrong about a whole bunch of others. Yeah. Now, look, let's maybe have a look at how this situation maybe came to be, right? Because as I say, Twitter's saying, oh, it's Sour Grapes. He's a disgruntled ex-employee. To which, you know, the entire InfoSec community is saying, um, uh, that's you know, that's not true. How dare you question Mudge, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I've made my own calls. I've done my own reporting on this, right? And I want to sort of paint a bit of a picture for people so that they can understand the level of dysfunction that we're dealing with here when it comes to Twitter's (laughs) management and Twitter's security, okay? I mean, it's horrifying. The conversations I've had in the last 12 hours are horrifying. So look, you've got to imagine that, that, that Jack Dorsey brought in Mudge and also brought in Rinky Sethi as CISO around the same time. Now you're talking an ex-hacker turned executive uh, and then someone who's come up through very much a traditional executive path. So these are very different types of people hired into an organization with management responsibility for essentially the same thing. Like there is massive overlap between Mudge's job, which was head of security and Rinky's job, which is chief security officer. Now that's okay if you've got someone who can help deconflict those roles. But in the case of Jack Dorsey, he seemed much more interested in meditating on a beach in Thailand than he did on actually having anything to do with the day-to-day running of Twitter. Even in the complaint, it says that Mudge spoke to Jack something like six times the entire time he was there. And that was his boss. I'm led to believe that this created an extremely dysfunctional environment. I mean, you know, the scene uh, in The Simpsons of the monkeys knife fighting, like this is how I'm told <laughs> basically security stuff was going in inside Twitter because it wasn't just a case that you had a CISO and a head of security. You also had people in engineering groups who considered certain parts of security to be their job. Okay, so you had multiple people all in this big fray fighting over stuff and no one there to do any deconfliction whatsoever. So you wound up with an, as I say, just an extremely dysfunctional environment in which stuff didn't get done. Yeah. I mean, that it makes a lot of sense in an environment like that. Even if you were great at, at wrangling all of that in an environment like that, you, you know, nothing is going to be easy or as you say, get done. Yeah. Yeah. So look, that's what, that's where we're going to leave that one, which is that you know, a lot of this stuff feels absolutely bang on. Clearly, there needs to be some sort of investigation into these claims, right? Clearly. And it's going to happen because the can is open, the worms are everywhere. It's going to happen. But I'm just saying, I guess what I'm saying is like, I have no trouble believing that Mudge is telling the truth, but I, I think we also need to leave a bit of room um, to be critical of others involved in this situation because let's put it this way, an environment like that doesn't bring out the best in people, okay? <laughs> so who knows what we're going to hear about it all. Am I, am I making sense or am I being a little bit too vague? No, no, I think, I, think, I think this makes sense. And, you know, obviously you've had a bunch of conversations with people and you've got some data on which to kind of base your opinions, which is probably why people listen to the show. So, yeah, I, I think that's bang on to me. <laughs> all righty. Um, and, you know, Washington Post did re- reach out to Rinky Sethi uh, to ask her to comment on all of this stuff and uh, she was not... Uh, she was not happy to make herself available she just wanted to stay out of it which uh, i think is a wise decision if i'm going to be honest oh, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is between all of you i'm going to be off yeah. at my new job i think she works for like bill.com now so you know happily executiving somewhere else um now uh we did actually have a story from early august to talk about uh in this week's show already uh which is a twitter related one which is that they confirmed a breach in January, which someone made off with an awful lot of data, five uh, data concerning 5.4 million accounts, which would link usernames to other identifiers like phone numbers, right? So if you have this database and some sock is giving you a hard time, you might be able to look up the phone number or email address and uh, de-anonymize, the, um, de-anonymize the account. That's about the long and the short of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. There was some mechanism by, by which you could get that in one of the like reset flows or something like that. And yeah, data has walked out the door and available on some forums. Uh, people seem to be asking for a reasonable amount of money for it though, 30k for 5.4 million Twitter users. That's um, a lot to unmask a sock that's annoying you. It is, it is indeed. Um, but yeah, it's also a pretty reasonable amount of users. I think uh, I got the notification from Twitter that I'm in there, so yay. Oh, really? Oh, there yeah. you go. It's like being famous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, so we'll link through to uh, the records right up of that in this week's show notes. But uh, let's stay with Silicon Valley, uh, uh, Silicon Valley hotshot company bugs. And there was a really, this is also from early August and you know, obviously it's our first show back in a few weeks, which is why we're covering old stuff. But I, I didn't want to do the show without talking talking about this one. Uh, Turns out Slack had a habit of just like 
throwing user like hashed user passwords around uh, in various URLs. Uh, just you know, just all the time, like as a normal part of how it operated. So if you were like running Burp Suite while a Slack user and someone sent you a certain type of invite, you could just like get their hushed password, crack it and off you go. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty funny, pretty funny bug. I mean, probably not super practical in the real world, but it's like looking at it now, uh, you know, does seem like the sort of thing that indicates not great threat modeling yeah. um, in terms of how they're <laughs> developing things. Um, they haven't confirmed like how exactly those passwords were hashed or you know how they were hashed for use in the URLs that were being passed around. Uh, and I gather like it wasn't the end user visible URLs, but it was something in, like in part of the API calls or whatever else that the Slack client was making uh, whilst doing so. So you didn't, like if you just pasted someone in the invite, uh, you didn't necessarily see the hash, but um, still pretty funny. Uh, and um, yeah, I you know, I love to see passwords. I love to see bugs where people have just not realized that they're passing around key material. You know, that's that's always a good time. Yeah, and it was there for a long time too. So yeah. <laughs> whoops. Uh, now look, uh, let's do a little bit of debunking um, right now. Uh, there was some research. I had a look at embedded browsers, right, from social media apps and whatnot, and found that the TikTok one like injects a bunch of JavaScript into user you know user sessions which keylogs, basically everything that the user does with the mini browser um, gets gets keylogged and sent back to them. And, you know, this was reported as like, oh, TikTok is, you know, subverting user devices. And it's sort of the whole thing got kind of blown up into something that was a bit inaccurate. Uh, I, I think everyday people would have been left with the impression that if you were a TikTok user and had TikTok installed on your phone, then it was going to log, you know, key log everything that you did on your normal browser. Uh, but really, it's just the case that it's the mini browser um, that uh, that is getting key logged. So a bit of a storm in a teacup. Is that your sense on this one as well? Uh, yes, we've seen a bunch of reporting lately, you know, about mostly about TikTok, which is conflating the like it technically can do this particular type of surveillance, whatever it is, and then not following up with, but it's not doing it, which is the case. It, it, it really know, the, reminds not... me of the panic when the Facebook Messenger client wanted microphone access. Yes. And everyone's like, oh, they're listening to our conversations. Like, well, how else are you going to send a voice message if it doesn't yeah. have microphone <laughs> access? You know? Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, there's that part where the reporting conflates is possible with is actually doing um, and obviously having some evidence of it actually collecting you know keystrokes from third-party forms for example would be useful in this context and then yeah there's the other half which you allude to where you know the fact that a browser invoked by an app when you click on a link in a tiktok post or whatever is different from the regular browser in the sense that it's controlled by the application and it can inject javascript and, and the researcher actually went and looked at a bunch of other applications embedded browsers and looked at kind of whether they were injecting javascript whether they were you know what other things they were doing in this process like that technical distinction means nothing to a regular person yeah and even you know to me i don't know that i'd ever really thought through what it, the difference between invoking a browser inside an app versus you know, switching apps to use the platform browser, even though it's the same code underneath. But in terms of a security context, I don't think I'd ever even thought of that. So mm. uh, in that respect, I found this reporting useful because that's just not a thing I had really thought through. So you know, the public's perception of this is just, you know, there's no hope for them to be able to reason about this given the the kind of reporting that they're getting. But even for us in the industry, I think it is, you know, it's still useful uh, and interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now... Some some goings on in Brazil, uh, Adam. You know, the old Lapsus crew have been pretty quiet the last couple of months and uh, now the Brazilian federal police have kicked in a bunch of doors and, uh, and uh, executed a bunch of search warrants all over Brazil and uh, this is uh, not really good news for the Lapsus kids. No, unfortunately, I suspect it is not. Um, and they did a bunch of stuff in Brazil and if that's where they were from, then, you know, that pays to do it outside of your immediate jurisdiction at the very least uh and i yeah i'm sure we will find out that they are also a bunch of kids like the one that we saw uh, in the uk yeah yeah so at the moment they've just done search and seizure warrants about eight of them what's interesting though is you know the the brazilian federal police they're they're like the fbi of brazil but it's just an insanely bureaucratic organization that doesn't tend to move quickly so if they've actually got to the point where they're where they're getting warrants and kicking in doors <laughs> like that's amazing do you know what i mean like yeah. once there's some sort of bureaucratic inertia behind something like this it's sort of like the fbi by the time they knock on your door you're in a lot of trouble already does that make sense <laughs> 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yes. So we'll see so, what we'll see what comes of them, the poor kids. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think it's going to be a great time, and I hope I hope they don't wind up in uh, you know a bad Brazilian prison because that's really uh, mm. not where you want to be. Like the biggest cartel in Brazil, uh, PCC, is actually run out of the, the prisons, right? So. Um, Let's hope they have a nice prison for the for the hacker kids because otherwise it's just anyway. Anyone who's interested in a fun rabbit hole, go read about PCC, the Brazilian Crime Organization, because it's just I can't believe there's not movies made about them. It's uh, fascinating stuff. Anyway, uh, let's have a look. Uh, let's let's travel off to Israel for a moment, Adam. And the CEO of NSO Group has stepped down again uh, because the CEO. Uh, uh, Shalev Julio, um, I think he stepped down last year and then came back and has now stepped down again. And there's another CEO coming and apparently they're laying off a hundred people, but don't worry because a company spokesperson said the company's products remain in high demand with governments and law enforcement agencies because of its cutting edge technology and proven ability to assist these customers in fighting crime <laughs> and terror. So CEO stepping down, hundred people uh, getting fired, uh, but everything's fine is what they're saying. <laughs> Well, I mean, NSO PR department has always, uh, you know, had some pretty bold claims about uh, all aspects of their business. So in keeping with what we've come to expect, I guess. Yeah. Now, I mean, you and I have spoken a little bit about this uh, in the past, but the breakup of NSO and their talent leaving this, you know, there, there will be people cheering this, but where are they going to go? Who are they going to yes. work for? And what are they going to wind up doing? Right. And I think this is the first major tranche I can think of that they're letting go. So uh, I'm really curious to see if any of the groups like Citizen Lab or whatever are actually going to track where these people wind up. I don't know if they've got some LinkedIn scrapers or something that can do it. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. And when we've talked about this in the past, we compared it with, you know, the proliferation of, of engineers that worked in nuclear programs at the end of Cold War. And, you know, whilst this obviously is not quite in the same realm as nuclear weapons, yeah, the, the risk of people taking those skills, you know, and, and, and we end up, you know, with... Uh, with these being used in in other places where we don't have the visibility and, and you know over you know media oversight that NSO Group was getting at the end. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So let's see what happens, and let's see if there. I have a feeling that there will be uh, responsible companies that would hire these people because they actually seem to get the the proliferation. I don't know. I think they're going to wind up at, at, at a bunch of the defense contractors, but let's see. Um, and they're pretty heavily regulated and tend to, well, tend to take compliance at least more seriously than NSO. So uh, what else have we got here? Big story that broke uh, a week a week or so ago was that someone owned Twilio, uh, the, the SMS um, uh, part of Twilio, and were able to intercept messages intended for signal users, right? The signal encrypted messaging app users, right? So so they were able to hijack accounts. And one of the affected users of all of this, one person who got their account actually hijacked was Lorenzo Franceschi Beccarai over at Vice. And he's written it up. It's it's interesting. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. And especially when told from a you know first person perspective here, like Lorenzo's experience of you know reporting this to Signal because he was one of the affected users was an interesting one to read about. Um, but yeah, essentially they had gotten access to, I guess, like a customer support panel or something at Twilio where they could read outgoing messages. Some of the earlier reporting said they could also send messages uh, from, you know, as though it came from Signal, but does, that does not appear to be the case now. Um, and so, yeah, they would go through the enrolling a new device into your Signal account process, catch the incoming SMS as it went past in the Twilio panel, and then proceed to register a device. And at that point, they could then read, send and read future messages, send new messages and read you know, responses to those, but they couldn't read historical messages. Um, and so I think... Well, they didn't, they didn't of, get uh, contacts either. So I, I actually... contacts. Yeah, I chatted to Lorenzo about this because like he was like August 7 was when it happened to him and he lost control of his account for about 12 hours. And he was asking people like, you know, so if I spoke to you then, I thought, huh, I wonder. And I had a look. And so I, I messaged him and I said, look, we actually had spoken on August 10, right? So not on the 7th. So I hadn't been speaking to a Lorenzo impersonator uh, as it turns out. But, you know, he made the point um, well, there's a couple of points there, right? So first of all, you're going to get a key warning um, if it's if it's an impersonator. So that's one uh, level of protection. Second of all, he was using a signal pin. So all of his historical data and his contacts and whatnot were not available to the attacker. So unless the attacker had someone in mind and had that, that person's contact details, like 
they didn't really get much from this, right? And of course, there's registration lock with Signal as well, which stops these types of attacks. Crazy thing is, I thought I had it turned on, but when I checked, I didn't. So I've turned that on now, but everybody should go turn on registration lock, which means you cannot churn, you can't really churn away uh, to a new device without actually using a pin, which is something that WhatsApp offers as well. And actually, I was in the same boat. I thought I had turned it on as well. I went and checked when I read this. I'm like, mm, it's off. So yeah, I yeah, too have turned it on. That's weird, isn't it? Because I could have mm. sworn I had it turned on. Yeah, me too. Maybe that's a bug. Yeah, maybe during one of the updates or whatever, maybe the settings, some of the settings got reset. Who knows? I mean, certainly or maybe, happen. Or maybe we were just getting confused with pin lock, which is a different it's possible. Thing. Yeah, it's possible that we were we were confused. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, li- listeners, uh, if you do use Signal, please go and check. And if you have a pin configured and you will remember it, then consider turning registration lock on. But I think it's a good news story ultimately in that, um, yeah, you know, you're going to get key warnings. The pin kept all of the content safe. And if you had rego lock on, it couldn't happen anyway. So I think all in all, as much as it's a juicy story to say that some hack impacted Signal users, looks 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 pretty small beer in the grand scheme of things and that's um that's good uh what else we got here oh it turns out the viasat hack which we have discussed at length on this show uh impacted uh, emergency services in france although the french government is not really elaborating on what that impact was just saying that it impacted uh ambulance and firefighter emergency services their, their phone services in particular but doesn't say how yeah, I think I saw some reporting which said it was uh, used as a backup communications mechanism. So, you know, it did take out the backups, which obviously you do need in emergency services, but that it didn't affect like the primary mechanism. Uh, yeah. Of, of the, which makes kind of makes sense that you wouldn't use orbital satellites unless you really needed to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I just wanted to add that to to the show notes and everything so people uh, people have another. Look, I'm sure there's someone preparing a slide deck out there who <laughs> listens to this show and they're going to find that useful. So I did want to mention it. The Department of Justice in the United States, uh, we've spoken about the, uh, the hack into their court system, uh, the DOJ's like filing system. We've spoken about that a bunch of times. Uh, I think you and I spoke about it initially when it was around the time of the SolarWinds breach. Initially, it looked like the DOJ breach was part of that but now we're not so sure anyway uh i think we we wound up talking about some people suggesting that they should go back to a paper system like a hard copy system for the most sensitive filings and it looks like the us doj the department of justice in the united states has gone back to paper filing for its most sensitive cases which is what a sign of the times yeah i mean exactly it's a it's a you know a wonderful sign of the times that that's kind of where we've got to like let's just go back to paper and typewriters and and then there'll be you know Israeli university students making audio side channels off the typewriters and then people <laughs> will be hacking the Hikvision cameras in the offices and reading the paper submissions but you know still an improvement over you know some nasty Java app developed in the late nineties that you know you stick all your important stuff in so yeah, yeah. sad sad but true I mean that's exactly where I fell on this one which is it's sad. Uh, but necessary, right? Because it's not going to be possible to stand up a, a, a sufficiently secure document management system that's going to be APT resistant, you know, and still usable in the way that people like these things to be usable. So, of course, they're going to go back to pen and paper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I guess there's some, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if they have kind of threat modeled the use of pen and paper, you know, enough, like where they'll prepare the document on a domain joined computer and then print it out and take it to the courthouse. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, whether yeah. they've done enough kind of whole system thinking about whether paper is actually an effective defense and presumably there is a whole committee uh, thinking about that right now. I was so actually thinking to that too. Like where are they typing these things up? Is yes. it on an air-gapped computer? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> got to be a party pooper don't you adam yeah but at least they've solved the problem at least they've solved the problem of a of a filing system where all of this stuff is centrally located right like it's gonna it's gonna make it harder to get this stuff even if they are typing them up on domain joint computers (laughs) because you would think these things are actually being typed up on like fbi computers and they would have reasonable controls you'd hope (laughs) you You would you would (laughs) but you never know do you but you never know the insurer lloyds of london uh, is saying uh, is instructing underwriters to change their policies so that they will no longer cover like cyber acts of war, Adam. Yeah, they published this guidance uh, for some of their underwriters to go away and kind of tighten up the clauses used around acts of war and also around kind of state. It's described as state backed attacks in this particular piece, but the actual wording uh, is, I think, more aiming towards you know things like in Costa Rica where the attacks impair the functions of the of the victim state as opposed to necessarily being 
you know, ordered or controlled or influenced or wherever you are on that graph uh, by a state. So some of the reporting has been a bit breathless. Yeah. Um, you're saying, oh my God, you're never going to be able to insure anyone. And if you're a, you know, incident response firm, you better not find a state attacker if you want to get paid. Um, you know, some weird incentives. But it's more there, about but it's, it's more about attacks that rise to the level of being, uh, uh, you know, sort of relevant at a state level, right? Yes, yeah, or part of actual war, and obviously the situation in Ukraine is an important part of that. But you know, similarly, we saw you know some confusion around things like NotPetya. Uh, when they were going through the insurance process. So obviously they're just trying to tighten this up. But it is part of the bigger trend of cyber insurance being less and less affordable for insurers. Yeah, yeah. And more and more focused. Although, you know, some of the stuff we have seen over the last few years, insurers uh, doing... You know, stuff a little bit more intelligently, like actually taking a meaningful look at um, at the uh, security programs of their customers and things like that, and demanding certain changes in exchange for policy discounts and whatnot. So I don't know. I sort of feel like what's really funny is you had that dream about what the insurance market would do, <laughs> then your hopes were dashed, and now it looks like it might happen. Like I think the universe is just decided you've always got to be you personally always have to be out of step with the reality of this situation (laughs) (laughs) i think so it applies to my fashion sense as well so i'm I'm pretty used to it (laughs) now tornado cash is something that you and i have spoken about in the past right so this is the uh ethereum uh uh, mixer or uh what's the other word tumbler right uh that uh you know you put your dirty ethereum in and it gets tumbled around with a bunch of clean ethereum and it comes out and theoretically it's clean right so the idea is put black money in um Um, comes out grey. Well, the United States has sanctioned it. They have sanctioned... And and the reason Tornado Cash is interesting is because the people who developed it put it on the blockchain and then destroyed the keys. So they can't remove it from the blockchain, they can't update it, whatever. And said, ha, 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 we're very, you know, we're geniuses, you know, code is law, ha, ha, in your face, uh, governments. Uh, So (laughs) about that, um, the US government, US Treasury has actually sanctioned tornado cash so all of the wallets associated with it you know they've just gone after it and said this whole thing is dirty so instead of black money going in and coming out gray anything that goes in comes out black right and um this has caused much you know many 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 feathers have been ruffled in the (laughs) crypto community over this because they're like you can't do that but it turns out adam uh, they can, and they they did. This is it's just it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. It makes me so happy reading reading this whole process because all of that effort at you know building something that's decentralized and impossible to regulate and so on and so forth. And yeah, they they meet an immovable object, the uh, Treasury's Office of Foreign <laughs> Assets Control, and you know the idea that they are sanctioning uh, you know a non-human entity, a piece of code, is in itself hilarious. Um, but starting to see some of the fallout of that process. Um, so, for example, you know, some of the major front-end like wallet operators, people that provide user interfaces so that people can actually use cryptocurrency sensibly, have started treating any transactions that went through Tornado Cash as, you know, as being sanctioned, as something that they can no longer interact with. Uh, and, you know, that's funny because... I mean, the blockchain itself is still there and you can still go use it, but if you can't use your wallet sensibly, you know, kind of illustrates some of the problems with with the system. Um, and then there was this griefer on, on Twitter uh, who clearly had a bunch of money in Tornado Cash and then picked up a whole bunch of people's Ethereum accounts and just started spraying them, like hosing them down with money from Tornado Cash, infecting them with sanctioning, yeah. um, which... It was just. I mean, that's. It's just such. It's well, such a beautiful what, what, thing. What it that made was, me so happy. What that was doing is like a lot of a lot of uh, organizations use stuff like Chainalysis to do automated sanctions compliance and stuff. So what they what this person did is when they started spraying their dirty cash into all of these wallets, it was like they were getting like auto sanctioned. So, <laughs> you know, it is a griefer sort of thing to do, and and I don't think it's going to cause any long term uh, problems, but. You know, Tornado Cash was used by the North Korean government to launder stolen crypto, right? And what one little thing that I found very interesting, no, no press picked this up actually because it was something that just happened very quickly on Twitter and, and not many people noticed, but Anthony Blinken, the uh, Secretary of State in, in the United States, when, these, when this, these sanctions came down, described Tornado Cash initially as a DPRK sort of run and sponsored thing. Now, DPRK had laundered money through it, but you've got the sex state saying... Oh, you know this. This is a this is a North Korean thing that we've sanctioned, and then of course, you know, the tweet was gone very quickly and replaced with another one that said, you know, the the North Koreans had used it. But it's 
you know, just what a time to be alive is what I'm getting yeah. at, right? And um, <laughs> Nick Weaver over at Lawfare has the definitive write-up on this. Um, best yeah. headline of the year, mm-hmm, Oh mm-hmm. Fuck Around and Find Out uh, by Nick <laughs> so Weaver. And, and, you know, he really makes the points about um, how centralized the practical use of most of this blockchain stuff is. So, of course, these sanctions are going to make uh, life very difficult for people who are trying to wash money. Uh, he also makes some points that, like, even further down into the guts of the of the sort of crypto infrastructure, it's going to be possible to to demand that certain operators of various services just start blackholing these transactions. Yeah, he has a really good argument that if you defined uh, cryptocurrency miners as a money transmitter and required them not to sign blocks that contain sanctioned addresses in the transactions, then you would effectively prevent you know, you'd be able to actually apply those sanctions at kind of a lower level because where we've seen the sanctions cause grief for users is where, you know, higher level entities, you know, wallet providers and that kind of thing are are using chain analysis, for example, um, to try and comply. But the underlying blockchain is not really affected. But the idea of pushing this down to the individual minor level and making it you know, that you're responsible for the contents of the block you sign. It's a wonderful idea. It is, and but it's, and what's wonderful about it is how, like, there's probably some Bitcoin people listening to this right now who are just going, they're turning red, the veins <laughs> are bulging out of the side of their heads uh, because you can't do that, man. You can't do that. This is about freedom. And uh, no, actually, you can do that. Yeah, and you probably should, turn, you know. <laughs> turns out you can if you're going to mine in the US, which is where a lot of it is happening at the moment because, you know, power is available and relatively cheap. China threw everybody out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm afraid you do have to comply with the laws of the United States if that's where you operate. Oh, and a chaser uh, on this story, which is one of the developers of Tornado Cash, has also been arrested by the Dutch police. Yes, and we've seen some of the code repositories, you know, shut down and some of the other infrastructure that supports kind of ongoing development of it. The the DAO uh, that was kind of behind future development on Tornado Cash has also kind of moved its money somewhere else. And yeah, I think, uh, you know, even if it is dead in the water, obviously it continues to operate on the blockchain, but... You know, would you send your Ethereum into it? I wouldn't. Well, exactly, right? (laughs) And sure, people could stand up equivalent things, but I mean, the real value of a tumbler is having enough volume to tumble. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is is a good move. I'm, you know, my hat's off to him. I think I said, you know, a year ago, one man's tumbler is another person's illegal money laundering operation, right? So, (laughs) exactly. I think the definition is swinging uh, radically towards being universally the latter, um, (laughs) (laughs) the way it looks. And um, uh, we got a report here from the the record, too, people can check out where um, they've talked about some money laundering happening through the Renbridge uh, platform as well. So, look, you know, there's a lot of money laundering activity, a lot of sanction activity happening uh, with all blockchain stuff. And it's, yeah, it's all very interesting. And, What's interesting is governments are finally interested in this and they're just, you know, they're just crushing it. Yes, you know, if you will try and speed run all of financial regulation, well, it's about time you arrived at being sanctioned. So, yeah, they're paying attention and I wouldn't want to be running a laundering service anymore. Now, I wanted to draw attention to a piece by Catalin Kimpanu. He wrote it up for one of our newsletters. Uh, he looked at a report by the British think tank, the Royal United Services Institute, which uh, has argued that ransomware crews are starting to target the global south because uh, maybe attacking targets in the global north is uh, attracting a little bit too much heat. Um, so this is interesting. I'm not sure that we can say you know, certainly that this, this is what's happening, but this isn't the first report along these lines that I've seen. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these reports that makes intuitive sense, you know, that, you know, the pressure from the West, you know, has gotten a bit high, it's gotten a bit risky. And also, you know, the the level of technological preparedness in, you know, Latin America, for example, is probably overall lower, you know, and, you know, just because the budgets are smaller, because, you know, there's different problems to solve. Um, So it kind of makes sense. And if you were just hitting up Shodan and looking for things to own that, you know, you're going to end up where there's more vulnerable things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, whether or not it, there is enough of a pattern yet, but it makes intuitive sense. Yeah, it does. But I don't think it's going to be as advantageous uh, to the crews as they think it is, because eventually this is a golden opportunity for uh, large countries in the global north to say, well, look, we're your allies and we're going to help you take care of this ransomware problem for you, right? So, yeah, I can I can see that they're still going to 
face heat um, eventually. So I don't know that uh, geographically changing their targeting is going to do much for them. Um, now, every year there's a Black Hat and DEFCON and every year James Kettle uh, from Port Swigger uh, drops some great research. The last few times it's been um, uh, you know, mostly related to HTTP request smuggling, but he's got some new stuff that he's, uh, that he's done and it's, uh, it's really interesting and I figured you would want to talk about it, Adam. Yeah, I mean, yes, if you're a pen tester that deals with web stuff, which is probably all of you, uh, this is, you know, as usual with James Kittle research, you know, mandatory reading. Uh, it will probably take a few tries to read it because <laughs> it's pretty dense. And James's way of thinking about these attacks is very structured, uh, which kind of requires that you think on his level, right? You have to kind of understand his structure and, and, and think about it in his terms to, to get it. But uh, essentially, he's ex extending the research he's done in request smuggling, um, which was mostly focused on how front-end proxies and back-end web applications could be kind of desynchronized, uh, and then you could bypass some of the security controls and origin-based controls uh, on the requests that you were sending in. Um, in most cases, those are things that an attacker would be doing to infrastructure. And what he's done in this round of research is look at ways where end-user browsers can be used to carry out similar sorts of attacks where you can manipulate the understanding of a request being made by a browser uh, in, in a proxy and in a web server and then manipulate that to, for example, inject code into the application or leak credentials or whatever else. Uh, and as is traditional with James Kettle, uh, he demonstrates this by like wrecking Amazon uh, or, you know, like other high profile things, Akamai, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so, you know, some Cisco VPN product as well, which was pretty funny. Um, so, essentially the difference here is you know browser is much less flexible and so some of the bugs are a little bit more obscure but he posits the idea of then turning this into a worm where <laughs> one client you know spams everybody else that's you know ended up sharing a connection with it with things that are going to cause them to spam other people and he uh, amazon met the necessary requirements for that so like can you imagine someone building a worm you know a browser worm that would affect everything behind amazon you know alb well, it's really uh -huh. easy to really easy to mitigate, Adam, because you just have to ask everyone in the world to close their browsers while Amazon patches it and then reopen their browsers. <laughs> yes, problem solved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's <laughs> it's always good. I'm very glad. Thank you, Portswick of the company, for paying James Kettle to do this stuff for good. Because like, if he was a bad man, oh, we'd be all so wrecked. Like that 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 one he did where he had the ability to like cache poison Firefox updates for the entire world. Uh, the guy's a menace. Yeah, so, no, yeah. he is a menace, and and it's and it's funny, right? Because there was a bunch of good research out of Vegas this year, but his stuff is always just so like, Ugh. you know, yeah, it's, it's really always really dense. out of the box, inventive stuff. And I just love how he's been able to take this thing that he kind of invented, right? This HTTP request smuggling stuff, or made made useful, and has just turned it and extended it and extended it and extended it, and it's just getting silly and uh, in the best possible way. Um, now, we've got a bunch of other stuff to get through here, and we're kind of already a little bit over time, which is something that happens when we've been away for a couple of weeks and then massive news breaks overnight just before we're about to record. Uh, but it is what it is. Uh, we've got a report here from Bleeping Computer about some hackers <laughs> who are able to steal Bitcoin <laughs> from Bitcoin AT by exploiting bugs in the ATMs. And I just love this, right? Like so it's good. like jackpotting a Bitcoin ATM. Just brilliant. Yeah, so if you've seen those ATMs around, these ones from, I think, General General Bytes is the vendor. Uh, they have a backend server that does the actual transactions for them. And there was just a straight up bug in the web app um, that, that drove it. And at that point, you could... Uh, the attackers who were doing this were just replacing the addresses that the ATMs would send coins to. And so if you showed up to like deposit them, just straight up nick it, uh, yeah. which is, is, is a wonderful thing. So people are being advised to patch them. If you're one of the operators of a fleet of Bitcoin ATMs, then... I mean, you probably get what you deserve. But um, <clears throat> nevertheless, patch your stuff, I guess. <laughs> Uh, what else have we got here? There is, let's see, a VMware bug. Uh, someone, well, there's always a VMware always, bug. And that, that's why I wanted to mention it is like, it just seems like there's always VMware bugs right now. I think CISA has warned about this one. VMware's warned about this one. It's out there. It's being exploited, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, and the funny thing is it's pretty closely related to some of the previous bugs and the researcher who found it uh, wrote up a blog post uh, talking through the mechanisms, mechanisms of it and it's just deep in the Java web app weeds. Uh, yeah. And you know, mandatory reading for for pen testers, uh, but a great example of of the systemic complexity in VMware's web stack and why it's always why there are always more VMware bugs. So yeah, yeah, 
you know, patch your VMware if you've got it. But if you're a researcher, definitely read that post. It's good, it's good stuff. Now, one thing I wanted to mention quickly, there's been another bunch of research uh, breaking SIDH. This is one of those quantum resistant algorithms. Um, uh, now, okay, so here's the thing that I have to correct. When we last spoke about this algorithm, we said it was one of the four that had been selected by NIST for standardization. It actually wasn't. So NIST selected four for standardization and another four that were still candidates for standardization. So we kind of uh, reported that incorrectly by saying it was one of the ones that was already selected for standardization. Um, but it looks like, yeah, it's been knocked, it, it got knocked down with some complicated mathematics. You and I spoke about that, but there's another paper out now uh, showing more issues with that algorithm. So that one looks like it's dead as a doornail now. Um, some attackers wound up using deep fakes of a Binance executive. Their chief communications officer, Patrick Hillman, uh, wrote that uh, uh, yeah, these attackers were using were using actual deep fakes of him to conduct attacks against uh, Binance, the crypto exchange. Yeah, it sounds like they were using like video deep fakes in like actual meetings. Yeah. So like real time rendered video deep fakes, you know, on a Zoom call or, or whatever else uh, to then you know uh, talk about you know, convince some other crypto investors about, you know, listing their stuff on Binance or whatever else. But pretty smooth seeing that in the wild. And the fact that it worked well enough, you know, on, on the dozen or so people that they tried it against, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, I just want to take a quick look at this one from the record. Jonathan Grieg wrote this one up. Uh, so Cisco had a ransomware incident back in May. It looks like it was relatively well contained. What I found interesting about this, though, is that uh, the user who let them in was essentially tricked into allowing an MFA push. They were socially engineered into allowing an MFA push, right, which let the attacker in through the Cisco uh, VPN. The reason I find this interesting is because, you know, it's something I've been saying consistently on the show for quite a while now, which is one-time passwords and push off are no good anymore. You've got to go FIDO. And I think this is just more proof of that. Yeah, 100% agreed. You know, those techniques are, they, they have to be workaday now. Like if you want to break into stuff, that's yep. what you need to be able to do. So yeah, agreed completely. Everybody go buy some YubiKeys. Um, Cisco mm -hmm. also released an advisory for um, bugs affecting like a million devices, including like ASA <laughs> and whatever. And they look they look pretty bad too, but it was, it was Rapid7 who found these bugs. Yeah, there was a bunch of bugs uh, in the Cisco Firepower uh, appliance thing, uh, and then a few more that affected the ASAs that related to the the graphical management interface. And you know, Cisco had argued the toss a bit on some of those with Rapid Seven. And I got to say, I kind of on Cisco's side with the the GUI related ones because they weren't super exciting, but the Firepower stuff, one hundred percent legit. Yeah. Yep, so congratulations to Rapid7 lead researcher Jake Baines. Uh, and yeah, there's a bunch of, uh, another bunch of Cisco bugs <laughs> in their um, like small business routers and whatnot. And these yeah. ones look terrible. Yeah, these are the, the straight up, you know, code exec via the web interface as we've come to expect. So yeah, good times. Good yeah, times, Cisco, thanks. One of them has a CVSS of 9.8, <laughs> which is, uh, oh no, two of them have a CVSS of 9.8. So that's... Uh, oh dear. Ars Technica is reporting. Dan Gooden has reported for Ars Technica on a North Korean uh, tool called Sharpext, which um, now this one, the reason, the only reason I wanted to mention this, we don't normally talk about APT tools specifically. The reason I wanted to mention this one uh, is it is a malicious browser extension and it is not the first time we've seen uh, malicious actors using malicious extensions. I can remember one other case where the attackers actually had malware on the box and then sort of installed a an invisible extension to then extend their attack off into the into the customers into the victims uh, uh, cloud environment right but we're going to see more and more of this right because if you can get an extension into your victim's browser you've got all of their gmail or their 0365 and their calendar and basically everything you need right yeah, and, and in this case, this is also a post-intrusion, you know, kind of browser extension. Uh, it's interesting in that they can programmatically install it, like they bypass a bunch of the controls that Google have in place for, you know, checking extensions haven't changed. And then they also have like a script. So in the case of it on Edge, they actually watch. Edge will pop you up a window periodically and say, hey, you've got an extension in developer mode. You know, is this what you meant? And so they've actually got a, a script that sits there looking for that window and then just programmatically closes it. Nice. Uh, try and stop the user getting warned. Uh, and then, yeah, it scrapes emails out of, out, of the web, um, out of the web email sessions. But what struck me about this is it really is what you need to get the job done these days. And just, yep. it, it looked like a very, you know, someone got told to solve this problem over in you know, Pyongyang and they, they must have had a terrible time writing this because there's so many fiddly little bits uh, that they would have had to work through. So good job on the, you know, for the developer because if they give it work, then um, 
you know, this was a hard, this was a hard day in the office uh, building this thing. So. All right. Well, Adam, that is actually it for the week's news. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's great. It's great to chat to you again, and we'll do it all again next week. And we're going to be doing it in the flesh next week because you're yes. actually uh, swinging by my part of Australia, and you're going to come and uh, hang out for a couple of days. Yes, it's been a while since we've done done an episode recorded uh, in person. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. See you then. That was Adam Boileau there with the check of the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Andrew Morris of Grey Noise Intelligence. Now, for those of you who don't know, Grey Noise provides a pretty simple uh, bunch of intelligence to its customers, mostly focused <clears throat> on excuse me, on uh, mass exploitation and scanning. So if your SIEM triggers an alert and you want to know if the IP that triggered that alert is attacking you specifically, or if it's just internet background noise, mass scanning, mass exploitation, that sort of thing, you can go to greynoise.io, put in the IP and it'll tell you. Uh, so that is free. Uh, you can do that right now, but Greynoise makes its money by licensing the same stuff via an API. They've also got good intelligence too when some sort of mass exploitation event kicks off, they can, they can alert you. So that's the sort of stuff that they do. Now, as you'll hear, uh, the way they sell this stuff is pretty simple. They can show ROI. They can show you how many SOC hours their service saves you and you know how much money it can save you, basically. Uh, now, this is a type of threat intelligence, but Andrew's here to talk about the problems he sees with you know broader threat intelligence like C2 and IOC trackers and whatnot. So sure, if you're a military or a bank, uh, you might want to buy some of these IOC feeds. But as you're going to hear, if you're not an organization like that, the value proposition from Threat Intel uh, is a little thin. Here's Andrew Morris. Yeah, so the, the first thing is like, let's define threat intel. And so you've got threat, which refers to like villains, miscreants on the internet that are up to no good. And then you've got intelligence, which like typically refers to kind of trying to predict the future. And so like, we're going to grossly oversimplify it by saying, trying to figure out what, you know, villains and miscreants are going to do. And then there's a lot of stuff that's certainly like kind of surrounding that. The problems, I think, threat intelligence has sort of existed for a little while as a market and it's become, started to become popularized sort of after Mandiant did APT1 in 2013. That's kind of actually, if you look at the Google trends, that was actually when, almost exactly when threat intelligence, the market started to kind of take off and it started to kind of generate more adoption. There are problems. Lots of people have problems with the threat intelligence space, including me. I have lots of problems with the threat <laughs> intelligence space. Actually, I have so many problems with the threat intelligence space that I started a company that does everything pretty much the exact opposite of the way every other threat intelligence company does. The, the, in no particular order, a lot of the data that threat intelligence companies provide is irrelevant. Um, a lot of the time it's opaque, which is to say, like, I don't know how or why you got here. And so I'm not sure that I agree with your decision. Sometimes it's very inaccessible. It's like really hard to actually like get to the data as like a user or get to the value. A lot of the time it's poor quality or it's non-block grade. And so what I mean by that is just basically there are enough false positives in the data that a lot of vendors sell or give access to that you can't really hook up computers that are going to make decisions based off of it. I mean, think, for example, again, how many times have you seen Google public DNS sitting in some threat feed because some piece of malware somewhere went off in a sandbox and tried to check its Internet with Google public DNS? So the quality is bad. It's untimely a lot of the time, believe it or well, not. One of the this number is one of one... my, this is one of the things that irritates me. And, uh, you know, the really hard thing when you're talking about this is there are people in Threat Intel who are doing, you know, absolutely amazing work. The problem yeah. is that it's just become such an outsized effort in the industry where you've just got so many Threat Intel companies pumping out so much stuff and that you need like to put real effort into making use of it. Uh, if if you're going to, like as a general sort of enterprise, right? Yeah. So I think, you know, it's where I get really frustrated is that um, basically the the players in the space as they exist right now, like a lot of the vendors in threat intelligence right now, like that, that make up the threat intelligence, um, you know, industry, so to speak, are kind of... Uh, they're not really able to sort of keep up with the speed of a lot that a lot of things are happening at a lot of the time, like especially a lot of the, the things that I'm acutely aware of mass exploitation events when a vulnerability comes out and everybody gets owned real quick, like things like that. You, you really need to be able to get data and insights to people like really, really fast. And uh, and sometimes it doesn't have to be like real time, but it does have to be within some kind of timely enough manner that that people get what they're looking for. And that's a data problem. 
And honestly, the, the really interesting thing that I found about a lot of threat intelligence vendors is that they're really kind of good at like threat and cyber and bad at data and kind of like getting data to you, making it clean, making it fast, making it explainable. And that's where it gets really boring and really important. It's not sexy. Like it's not cool thinking about like how to get data to people really quickly and how to get it in a way that like is consumable and meaningful. And so that's actually something that like, I guarantee you there were a hundred companies who had something useful to say about Log4J or about the Confluence bug that happened recently or about a lot of these bugs. I guarantee you they have useful things to say about it. They just can't get it to their users or to their customers in a timely enough fashion that they're able to make decisions based off of it. And if well, you don't and, do and that, quite often like, the, what are the, you doing? And quite often the customer is in the position of being uh, the proverbial mule with the spinning wheel. Don it's, knows how he so, got it and he, uh, Don knows how, how he's going to use it, you know? Yeah, yeah, and it's and so it's it's really it's 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 sad to see when you know that like there's so much that that again there are so many people who are doing really good work, but a lot of it just like isn't making it to customers in a way that's like useful for them. Another problem is like a lot of the time it's unactionable. You'll get it and it'll be like you know you, a box in your network is owned, and you're like. Which box? Like what? Like where? What am I supposed to do with this? Right? Like like what do I do? Okay, like here I've got the box that's owned. Like now what? Right? Like clearly I'm in a place where thing bad things are happening. You're telling me about it. That's great. What do I do now? Right? Like what do I do now? And what well, is so, a computer you know, supposed to do a, now? I, I, I get where you're going with this, right? Because I've never really thought about gray noise as threat intelligence, to be honest, because mm -hmm. you're all looking at automated activity and the whole thing's designed out of the box to be operationalizable, uh, if that's even a yeah, word, exactly. right? But it's yep. like it's like threat intelligence because it's all the dumb stuff on the internet. And I guess when you're starting with that, from that proposition where it's designed to be highly automated and designed to be operationalizable, very easily and very quickly. Like that's the starting premise for your uh, thing. I guess I guess where you're coming from is that now you're frustrated with the way the threat intelligence people do it because you've realized that there's a better way, right? When you actually Bingo. start from it's the proposition of, yeah. Exactly. And so like our standards have always been just like, I mean, not to toot my own horn, right? But like our standards have always been insanely high for data quality and for SLAs and for delivery and for explainability and for things like that. Like they've always been really, really high. And so then now as I'm learning more and more about kind of the direction of a lot of threat intelligence companies and like a lot of their products as they stand now, they can be threat intelligence feed providers. It can be threat intelligence platforms. It can be like a lot of stuff like this. I'm actually getting like like very disappointed by what I'm seeing and looking at a lot of the the organizations around it. I don't want to sling too terribly much mud because I get that it is very difficult. It's hard to do. But I'm looking around and I'm like, how is someone supposed to make decisions with this? Or how is someone supposed to like reliably get, you know, value out of this thing or prevent bad things from happening? How are they expected to do this? And so part of my frustration is that, um, in order to even get value out of a lot of threat intelligence offerings, you need to buy like nine more things. And yeah. like that is that is really frustrating, uh, I think, for a lot of users and buyers. It's just there's a lot of red tape and there's a lot of like a lot more stuff that you have to buy to even get value from it, which if I were a yeah. buyer in threat intelligence or if I, if I were a security person who was on a CTI team or something like that, I would also be very frustrated with the state of threat intelligence. Right? I mean, I, I haven't really done much business, you know, sponsor wise with threat intelligence companies, mostly because of all, all of this sort of stuff. Right. Um, I, but I was going to say I it's have... also because a lot of them don't have that much money because <laughs> a lot because um, a lot of them aren't doing great right because of yeah. the reasons that I'm outlining but i have i have you know done work with some of the the toolmakers right one that springs to mind is eclectic iq and i found their stuff interesting mm -hmm. and of course you know i'm not a practitioner i don't know if their stuff is amazing or whatever but i know it's interesting and you know their whole thing is being able to produce ingest and operationalize threat intelligence but their customers are like militaries you know yeah, like it's yeah. very big organizations that are very security critical and you know very 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 large uh, uh critical organizations right and i sort of feel like in my mind that's where threat intelligence should live and yeah i mean if you've got a system where you know say mandiant publishes it's all of its iocs for the last quarter and you've got a system mm -hmm. you can cut and paste that into and get some meaning out of like that is just mm -hmm. incredibly powerful and incredibly cool but that's not most organizations like the, the the groundwork you have to do to make that a reality 
is is substantial. And I guess, you know, that's why I said at the intro, like I could see the use case if you're a bank and there's a threat intel company that mostly tracks fin crews, you know, you're definitely going to want to subscribe to that feed. But yeah, again, like it's just such an outsized like sector of the whole wider cybersecurity industry. Yeah, I think that's right. So it's definitely, there's kind of like a 1% sort of situation kind of going on here, which to your point exactly, like banks, militaries, more mature organizations that like have a lot more to lose that have more mature kind of programs, like totally makes sense, like totally get it. Um, And then there's also kind of like, I don't know, I think about the exact opposite of that as well, which is like, well, what about everybody else who does have problems? And there there are companies who have data that's useful on stuff that criminals are up to that they can get it to you and it doesn't, it shouldn't have to be really hard. It shouldn't have to be something that only wildly mature organizations take advantage of. If you kind of view it as abstractly as I'm trying to figure out bad things that are happening and I'm trying to prevent them from happening to our customers. Like that's how I kind of synthesize it um, as, as succinctly as I possibly can. And that's not something to me, at least that's not something that is conceptually unique to banks. It's just unique to banks in practice right now for all the points that you were just making, right? They're the ones who it makes the most sense to. They're the ones who have, you know, massive budget, lots to lose, mature security organizations, et cetera. But we're seeing more and more that like bad things will start happening that are relevant to, to everybody that can be really critical. I mean, it can be around ransomware. It can be around mass exploitation, some combination of the two. And, um, you know, and it's, I guess it's, we're starting a lot more people other than the the top 1% of organizations are starting to feel a lot of that pain. It's kind of created a little bit of a demand for much more accessible and kind of transparent and like, I don't know, simple threat intelligence that actually delivers and isn't, you know, insanely stupidly expensive, right? Well, I mean, okay. And here's the thing, right? Like ROI is a real thing here and a bank can measure ROI. They're very good at mm-hmm. that. They can measure ROI on a, on, a, on a threat feed, right? Most people would not be able to measure the ROI they're getting out of a threat intelligence feed, right? And I know this frustrates you because like you've built your whole company, like your whole sales thing is like being able to give people ROI projections on your product. Yeah, exactly, right? And it drives you nuts that they can't, that the threat intel companies can't do this. I mean, that's right. So it's, it's, it's really cool though. So it's like, it's a, it's an awesome ace in the hole, right? For whenever we're discussing pricing, et cetera. And we like, well, I mean, look, this is like the values right here. Like we all, we did, we agreed to all of these numbers. It's like very quantifiable and that, that works really well for us. Well, hang on. Why don't you walk us through, why don't you walk us through what's involved in a ROI calculation for gray noise? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, so at the end of the day, like basically what we're trying to figure out is how much of your analyst time we're opening up for you. Like how, like all of your analysts are already overworked. That's a fact, right? They have way too many things to do and they don't have enough time to do it. That's also a fact. You also, as if you're operating a SOC or something like that, you don't usually have a ton of money to sling around towards new tooling people, et cetera, right? So it's, it's really important, again, as a is like an MSSP, for example, like the, your margin is, is everything. So the way that we kind of calculate this stuff is we just basically say, great, how many outside, how many, how many alerts are raised that your SOC has to triage on a daily basis? Um, of those, how many of those, what's the percentage that gray noise can tell you you objectively don't care about or you can deprioritize to the bottom of the pile, 20%, great. Then we're going to say, how many analysts do you have? What's the average regional analyst salary that you guys are, are looking at investing? And what's the, the average amount of time that they take on these And then what's, the, what's yeah. the average ticket time to close or incident time to triage? And then that's it. We roll it all together <laughs> and we basically say like, bam, here it is. We just found you all of this time that you can actually reinvest towards the things that only humans can do and building automation and things like that, right? Actually make things much better. And so that's usually kind of the formula that we walk through with people when we're talking about, you know, security efficiency in the SOC. And that that has worked really, really well this far. And then it's really interesting to compare what I just described to kind of the the way that, again, uh, the way that threat intelligence, the non-gray noise threat intelligence companies, a lot of the like longer running threat intelligence companies and even some of the newer ones, you think about how they're going to try to price something. If it's not fraud, because fraud is wildly easy to quantify the value of, but if it's not fraud, then you're talking about basically taking like, all right, we're going to maybe prevent an undesired outcome that is going to have a very difficult to quantify 
uh, cost to you and we're going to maybe prevent it. And we're going to, and we don't know how much the bad thing would, would cost like the big breach that we're going to hopefully well, prevent from happening. We don't know how far through the bad sequence of events we're going to catch it either. And yeah, what that That's bad right. sequence of events is. Yeah. There, there are so many unknowns that what a lot of threat intelligence companies will do that's just the worst way to do things is they'll just try to scare the crap out of you as much as they can. And then they'll say, buy our thing and you're good now, right? And that's like that when you compare that process and the, the a lot of the lack of clarity that the buyer has and the lack of transparency the buyer has, when you compare that to something that's like, reasonably cut and dry like you can see why buyers and users would be frustrated after a period of time like that just sounds like a nightmare yeah. to try to quantify and god help a lot of the people who are trying to make the case for the sales for this because even if the product is good if you don't have like really kind of solid backing behind some of the prices then you know you're just going to really frustrate a lot of people you know i reckon what we should do right once you and i become co-joint you know global dictators right Here's the plan. We're going to take all <laughs> of the stuff. We're going to take all of the staff from the threat intel companies because they're really smart, right? Like all the threat they analysts are. and stuff, they're really, they're, smart. they're really smart. Yeah, it's a hard but instead job. Of them, instead of them working for threat intel companies, we're going to take them and assign them to important enterprises and they can work in there, right? Doing their threat intel work and sharing with each other, okay? And we're just going to get a much better result. Because this is, and this is what I wanted to get across, right? Is like the threat intel analysts themselves are really smart and do really good work. I think what you and yep. I are both sort of arguing is this probably isn't the best or most efficient way to use their time at a macro level. Yeah. We are really bad at sharing information is basically like kind of what I'm getting at. I'm not the first person to say this, but it's like you'll have you'll have massive threat intelligence companies that are like try investing gazillions of dollars in providing the best stuff that they possibly can. And then you'll have some like discord channel of like 40 people just slinging every single thing that they see that is really useful for one another that will actually in a lot of ways generate more value than, you know, a gazillion dollar company that's doing its best. It's mind blowing. Andrew Morris, uh, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, sponsor interview. It's always uh, it's always a lot of fun to chat to you, man. Thanks so much, Patrick. Always a pleasure. That was Andrew Morris of Grey Noise Intelligence there. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Grey Noise for being this week's Risky Business Sponsor. You can find them at greynoise.io. And that is it for this week's edition of the show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Until next week, uh, I have been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.